Hello, and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting, and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Andrea Pride. Today, we're talking about the post-implementation review of IFRS 9. And to help me through that, here's my guest, Marie Kling. Marie is Global IFRS Leader for Financial Instruments and Financial Services at PwC. So welcome, Marie. Thanks, Andrea. Happy to be here. Okay, Marie. So in October 2020, the ISB decided to begin the post-implementation review, or PIR for short, of the IFRS 9 classification and measurement requirements. But it wasn't going to go and start the impairment and hedge accounting requirements right now. And then in December, the ISB indicated plans that it's going to be conducting outreach for the first phase of the PIR in the first half of this year, targeting a request for information in the third quarter of 2021. So before we get into the specifics of that decision, let's start with the basics. Marie, can you tell us a bit about what a PIR is anyway? Yeah, so a PIR is required in the uh, due process handbook. So what the board is required to do is conduct a PIR of each new IFRS or any major amendments to a standard. And that normally begins after those new requirements have been applied internationally for two years. So what does that mean? Well, it's generally about 30 to 36 months after the effective date of that standard or major amendments. Now, in addition to any new standard, what the board can also do is, is decide to do a PIR in response to changes just in the environment. So that could be the financial reporting environment or any changes in regulatory requirements, or frankly, even in response to concerns about the quality of a standard that could have been raised by the interpretations committee or any other interested party, for example. So really, when you take a step back, a PIR is really an opportunity to assess the effect that a new standard or any major amendment has had on stakeholders, investors, preparers, and auditors. Now, technically, it's classified as a research project. So the, the purpose is to understand if standard setting is required, but it's not an active standard setting project yet. And it's also based on new information. That's important. It's really not intended to be an opportunity to re-deliberate information that the board already had and considered when it developed the standard in the first place. Okay, so thanks for that. That's a little bit more about the basics, but how does it actually work in practice? This is the ISB, so there's going to be specific process. What's the specific process and timetable that needs to be followed? Yeah, so there's two phases. So let me start with the first phase. That usually involves the identification assessment of the matters that need to be looked at. And those are then subjects of a public consultation by the board that's kind of in the form of this request for information or IFI. And so this first phase really draws on the broad network of IFRS standard-related bodies. So by that you mean things like the Interpretations Committee, the ISB's consultative groups, uh, securities regulators, national accounting standards setting bodies, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Also regional bodies, uh, for example, that are involved with standard setting or preparers, auditors or investors as well. Okay, good. And really, the purpose of those consultations is kind of to inform the board so that it can then determine the appropriate scope of the review. So that would be how extensive the consultations would need to be in this phase, depending on the standard being reviewed and on what the board already knows about the implementation? Yeah, so, so really, in a nutshell, the board needs to be satisfied it has sufficient information to then establish or determine the scope of the review. 
And so this is all the stuff that will be happening in the first half of 2021. Yep, that's right. And so in the second phase, what then happens is that the board kind of considers all those comments received from the request for information in the first phase, along with any additional information that it gathered through other consultation or consultative activities. And based on that information, the board then presents its findings and kind of sets out the steps it plans to take based on that review. Okay. So what sort of thing has the board looked at, at in PIRs in the past? Yeah. So generally kind of you know what's being considered is, is one whether the objectives of the standard have been met is the information useful to the users of the financial statements are the requirements capable of being applied consistently we know that that's a big focus for regulators as well consistent mm-hmm. application and then the last piece is really whether the costs of the standards for all your stakeholders so that's your preparers auditors regulators and users are broadly what the board expected when it developed the standards so so those are generally the key considerations for uh, for previous PIRs that were conducted in the past Okay. And so which standards were had PIRs conducted on them in the past? Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so we've we've had PIRs for IFRS 3, so that's your business combination standard, IFRS 8, operating segments, as well as IFRS 13, the fair value measurement standards. So if I look back, I think those were roughly completed between maybe 2012 and, and 2018. The one that's ongoing now is the one on IFRS 10, so, so you're consolidation standard, IFRS 11, um, joint arrangements, and IFRS 12, the disclosure standard. So so that PIR began in 2019 and is active at this point. Okay, so IFRS 9 is going to be quite a big PIR for them to, to do. Why have they decided to approach the PIR of IFRS in phases? Great question. I sort of wondered the same thing as to uh, why it needed to be chunked, uh, whether we could do it in one shot. But, you know, if I think back, you know, even IFRS 9 itself, right, the standard itself was developed in in discrete stages, kind of reflecting key areas, right? You have your classification measurement, impairment, and hedge accounting. So the the PIR really follows sort of this phased approach that was taken when the the standard was first developed. So classification measurement indeed comes first. Okay, so let's let's look at, we're obviously doing the classification and measurement, so let's look at the other phases and what the considerations are there. Let's talk about the impairment. What would you see about the considerations about beginning the PIR on the impairment phase? Yeah, I think the sense there was that it's probably too early, frankly, to begin the PIR for um, the impairment or the ECL model in IFRS 9. And frankly, you know, when you take a look back, right, the ECL model in IFRS 9, that was the most significant change, right, that was introduced by IFRS 9. So it's a forward-looking model that's very dynamic in nature. So as expectations and assumptions or economic conditions change, that model needs to incorporate those changes. And frankly, we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and really a number of assumptions and approaches have had to be adjusted by preparers in relation to that economic environment we're in. And so, you know, for the PIR to be successful, really what the board would need to look at is really how the ECL model reacts and worked in various economic environments. So sort of pre-COVID-19 and during COVID-19 and then kind of assess, yes, the model works and it works well in different economic environments. And because we're still in the middle of the pandemic, it's a bit too early to kind of start that because we really don't have enough information yet about how it reacted in a a COVID-19 environment. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll have a lot more information when when this is over. Yeah, Um, that's right. 
Looking at the next uh, phase then, what about hedge accounting? Yeah, for hedge accounting, I think it's sort of a similar feeling, right? There's not sufficient information yet on that because, as you know, right, some entities are still applying the IS39 hedge accounting model. So there it's a similar thought process, right? There's probably not sufficient information yet to do, to do the PIR on, on the hedge accounting piece of IFRS 9. Yeah, okay. And of course, last but not least, we have the disclosure requirements. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that should also be an important area of focus in the PIR. We always save disclosures for last, but, you know, and I'm guilty as well. They're an important piece. So clearly, you know, how the disclosure requirements work will also be an important component of the PIR. But again, I think the staff was sort of looking at this and said, really, they probably want kind of four annual reporting periods to be completed. Again, to have sufficient information on the disclosure pieces as well before that that last leg of, of IFRS 9 slash IFRS 7 is conducted. Okay. So IFRS 9 was mandatorily effective in 2018, and you mentioned earlier that it, a PIR would normally begin after the new requirements have been applied internationally for two years, so about you know 36 months or so after the effective date. Why has the board decided to start now on the PIR? Yeah, well, it, frankly, it's been a while, right? Uh, classification me and measurement was issued first in 2009. That was effective for annual periods beginning on or after January 1st, 2013. And the completed IFRS 9 version was issued in 2014. And the effective date was 2018. So again, it's been a while and, and it's kind of starting it in phases kind of makes sense now. Yeah, it feels like it's due now, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. So those who know me at all will know that this is not a surprising question, but what about insurers? Many insurers don't have to apply IFRS 9, of course, at the moment, because IFRS 4 was amended to provide a temporary exemption that allows some insurers to apply IS 39 rather than IFRS 9 before 1st of January 2023. So given they don't have to apply IFRS 9 yet, what does this mean for them? Yeah, and right. If the board begins the PIR now, insurers will not be able to provide any feedback based on their experience, right? Because they're not yet applying the classification measurement requirements of IFRS 9. So, so that was a concern or, or point for consideration when the phased-in approach was, uh, was decided. And then if you think about it, right, many insurers at the time IFRS 9 was developed sort of provided feedback or even disagreed, right, with the prohibition from reclassifying gains and losses from OCI to profit and loss on disposal of any equity instruments that were classified at fair value from, through OCI. And some insurers at the time had said that these requirements in IFRS 9 could discourage them from investing into some of these assets. And that's, you know, this piece of feedback is a difficult issue to solve because regardless of whether the board performs the PIR, you know, before or after insurers use IFRS 9, it'd be difficult for them to assess whether IFRS 9 has affected the insurer's investment decisions. So, you know, if you think about it being disruptive as well from an insurer's implementation process, the, the staff really looks at it and thinks that the, the process for IFRS 9, at least for the classification and measurement piece, will take approximately 18 to 24 months to complete, including sort of the, the request for information we've been talking about. So it's really unlikely that any possible amendments would be finalized before January 1st, 2020. 23. So hopefully, you know, starting it now won't be disruptive to uh, to the insurer's implementation processes. But again, it, it, you know, they won't be able to provide feedback because I'm not using IFRS 9 yet. 
Yeah, but then as you said earlier, there is um, it's, it's not meant to re-deliberate things that have already been discussed. So the feedback's already been provided as part of the IFRS nine process, which is which that's is, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so just my last question, I suppose, to you would be, what would be on your wish list for the ISB to look at as it does the PR? What do you want to see in that request for information? Yeah, I, uh, I gave that some thought just based on where I spend my time on, on classification measurement aspects of IFRS 9. I kind of came up with kind of three areas. The first one is, is overall just the SPPI test overall. We've had lots of questions on how the test is applied. Um, and also, you know, it's a very topical area because we're just looking now at how the SPPI test works for um, what I call the green loans. So those are your loans where, you know, your interest is adjusted up or down based on whether an ESG measure is met or not. So that's a very topical issue. So I'm, I'm keen to, to kind of have, you know, at the SPPI PI test in general kind of being looked at, particularly how it reacts or how it works for sort of developments in the, um, in the markets or in the current environment. Okay. My second one is contractually linked or the instrument, the CLI, as we call it, for short aspects of IFRS 9. So just as a refresher, right, these contractually linked instrument that applies when you have um, securitizations uh, or tranche structures, asset-backed securities. And so IFRS 9 has these predefined rules to kind of look at how the payout works um, from the structures and what the different priorities are between the different asset classes or tranches. So those requirements are quite complex. And, you know, frankly, I've started with the SPPI test, right? It's difficult enough just to, to see whether the SPPI test is actually met when the asset is on your own balance sheet and the entity has all the contractual terms. But it's more challenging when the assets are, are structured by another party, right, and are part of a broader securitization structure. So definitely the contractually linked instrument piece of IFRS 9 would be, uh, would be my second issue. Okay, and the third one? Yeah, and last but not least would be non-recourse loans. Um, so again, right, you ha certain loans can have non-recourse provisions in them. So that means usually the creditor's claim is limited to specified assets. And for those as well, um, what you have to do is kind of look through the underlying assets kind of to determine um, whether the contractual cash flows are SPPI or not or meet the SPPI test. And so, um, again, the key judgment there is what's the tipping point, how much risk is needed or, you know, how much is too much, you know, if there is too much risk, the, the instrument may fail the SPPI test. So, again, kind of assessing, you know, non-recourse loans and looking through and, and looking at how much risk is passed on is, uh, is a challenging area as well and definitely a key area of judgment. So that'd be my, uh, my item number three. Your, your wish list. So I guess this yes. is classification and measurement. So it's all around the SPPI test is the biggest thing. So just in general, contractually linked products and non-recourse loans. That's, um, That's right. Okay, so thank you, Marie, for um, sharing those thoughts with us and also for joining me in this podcast today. So for all our listeners, it would be worth keeping an eye out for the outreach that's coming out in the PR to see if Marie's list does make it onto the uh, list and the request for information in due course. And we are certainly going to be coming back to this in a future podcast. So in the meantime, just wanted to say thanks to all our listeners. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers, LLP. 
This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.